Welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. I believe there are many ways to live life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, even you. Not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, now maybe you can see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow They have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. Welcome to How She Really Does It, a place where inspiration and possibility meet. Have you ever talked and talked to try to resolve an issue in a relationship? Do you feel exhausted and unheard? Couples therapist Nancy Dreyfus created a revolutionary practice that helps real people hold the power to express what they wish they could say to the person they love. Nancy is the author of Talk to Me, Like I'm Someone You Love, and has also created flashcards of the same name. Nancy, hello and welcome. Hi, Corinne. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you here. And so in for my show, How She Really Does It, where this is a place where inspiration and possibility meet, I think your book and your flashcards are such a great resource for my community that I have. And I'd like to know about, or I'd like you to share with my listeners how these relationships cards came about. I would love to. I want to just handle one little technical thing when you say the book and the flashcards. The book actually is the flashcards, that on every page of the book we have a flashcard, and and what you think are the cards are just a little portable set, so you can improve or save your relationship in a subway, a car, or on a ski lift. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell people how this came about, and then they'll get what the idea of it is, Corinne. Okay. About 20 years ago, when I was a younger junior therapist, I had a couple in my office who made me very anxious. They reminded me of my parents. The wife was just screaming at the husband in a way that was very familiar to me, actually. She called him a horse's ass, which was my mother's favorite word for my father. And I I froze. It was like I was a nine-year-old um, with my parents unable to stop them. And, you know, more out of desperation or maybe some inspiration, to use your word, I leaned over and on an envelope wrote, talk to me like I'm someone you love. And I gave it to the battered husband and I said, hold it up to her. And he simply held up the message and a woman who had been screaming at him for 10 years stopped in her tracks. She felt appropriately embarrassed. She apologized. And the two of them walked out as friends. And what I saw in that moment was a miracle. 
I saw the dignity in the phrase, talk to me like I'm someone you love. He was honoring himself. She picked it up and out they went. And I, they walked out of the office. I was sort of in a daze, but a, an interest, a curious one. And I began exploring the value of written messages with my clients, not even thinking this was going to go, you know, go big. Mm-hmm. And I just started, I gave a group of women in my practice one card that just said, I don't feel heard. And in two weeks, they were coming back telling me that their marriage just felt much better. And then over time, we've had a number of incarnations. And this month, um, January of 2013, we have the um, expanded version of Talk to Me Like I'm Someone You Love, which is a 127 different flash flashcards. This version actually including flashcards that have to do with making love and deepening trust. Um, and that's how it uh, that's how it came about. I, I probably should give our listeners some examples of what some of the cards sound like. That'd be great. Um, this feels awful. Can we start again and really listen to each other? I can see that I've missed the point. Please give me another chance. I realize I'm overreacting. Can you give me a minute to get sane again? And by the way, nothing will make your partner happier than acknowledging you have not been sane. I can promise you that. Um, I know I was off, but I'm worried you would rather clobber me than get close again. Like how many times we might feel that. I know I was off, but I'm worried you would rather clobber me than get close again. So the cards really create a kind of pattern interruption, Corinne, that have so much more power at times than the verbal than the verbalized word. And it seems like when, and you mentioned this in your book, um, that when you use these um, prompts that you have, it opens up vulnerability. Well, not only, it's, that's really, uh, I like how you put it, not only does it open up vulnerability, it it is vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I think an important thing to say at the get-go about this is why the written word in this case has more power to access the vulnerability than the verbal word. Mm-hmm. When we are in a tense situation, with a, particularly with a loved one or anyone, what occurs physiologically is our fight-or-flight response arises. And when our fight-or-flight response kicks in, a sense of danger Basically, all our system can do is scan for danger so that if you and I were to have an upset and I was to say to you, Corinne, you know, Corinne, I'm really sorry. You would hear, you wouldn't hear I'm sorry. You would hear the 4% exasperation or weariness in my voice tone. So if you can consider that this system or this approach completely neutralizes voice tone, there's something very pure about the message getting crossed and your best self gets across. I mean, it's, and you know, sometimes I try to give people an example. Imagine having a child who doesn't, who's sort of resistant to brushing her teeth. Mm-hmm. Imagine saying, will you brush your teeth? Or imagine just holding up a picture of a toothbrush. In other words, most people at a certain point just tune out words, tune mm-hmm. out the auditory channel. Mm-hmm. Nancy, I'm going to try that. I have an 11-year-old that it's a battle with. <laughs> with teeth, with toothbrush? Yes. I, I'm, I'm saying it's actually... <laughs> I'm trying it. Well, I, I actually had the same thing going on because I was a little heavy-handed with my daughter around toothbrushing. Mm-hmm. And uh, along the lines of what I was doing, I would just hold up a picture and I wouldn't overwhelm or trigger resistance in the auditory channel. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the very act of going to get the flashcard is saying to your partner, I want something better. I, 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 I want something realer. I'm going to make our relationship matter more. I'm going to make our relationship matter more than getting to be right. Mm-hmm. Well, and with these flashcards, like, and I think about the story you tell in your book about um, your husband and uh, where he took one of the flashcards and taped it above the bed. That's actually my current, my, it's actually my current partner. Did I, I did I, I'm not trying to think, did I mention it? Yes, I did in the New York <laughs> yes. that I completely, suddenly I felt a little exposed. It's <laughs> vulnerable. Yes, there's the flashcard right now, I don't need a lecture. Mm-hmm. I need your love. And he took the liberty of crossing out lecture and putting therapist. Mm-hmm. Right now, I don't need a therapist. I need your love. He framed it, put it over the bed, and we just do the point and click. We do, we do the point-and-click method. I, I'll, I'll tell you as an aside because it's very hard not being a therapist in a relationship. Mm-hmm. There are certain challenges. Even my voice tone, my languaging, the way that I listen, the way that I say, uh-huh. You know, I can, and we decided for one month that I would pretend that I was a concubine rather than a therapist. We would do an experiment. Can I tell you the grade we both gave me independently? Yes. Ready? C+. Plus. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I these these get used in my own these get used in my own life. So Nancy, I have a question for you. Um, this has been your life's work about communication and relationships. And is there a reason that you sought out this this information and in how to help people communicate? Well, you know, like for, you you've heard enough about how this came about in mm-hmm. terms of my own family of origin. I I had a mother who, you know, meant well, you know, she came from her own background and I just grew up listening to people fight all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. I heard a lot of screaming. Um, I was screamed at. I basically learned to scream. I have a poignant memory now that we see, you know, um, the success of my book. I remember being a senior in high school, sort of a a little chubby, um, you know, hadn't dated anybody, kind of the bookworm watching what looked like the cool boys, guys and girls standing at lockers, looking at each other, dreamily talking to each other. And I remember consciously having the thought, is there a book that tells you what to say? It's like I didn't know like how to relate or how to communicate because um, I had grown up with such tumult. So, you know, obviously I've had years of my own therapy and personal exploration. And what I have come to I'm going to say this, it sounds a bit provocative, Corinne, but it actually is a useful, I think there's a truth in it. There is no such thing as having a relationship with another person. There is only having a relationship with Corinne in that other person's force field. So that what my book and what my thinking is about, what what I came to, because I had to learn by the numbers, it was not organic, it was not natural, I was often tongue tied. I was not articulate. I often felt false to myself. Is that the work in life is to know what it is that you're experiencing, to be true to yourself in somebody else's force field and not worry so much about the relationship. If you were in my presence right now, I could probably do this a little better. But imagine that right now, everybody listening, I'm leaning over and I'm about one inch from your face and I'm very close paying attention to you. 
and I'm thinking, am I being helpful? Am I being clever? Are they enjoying me? Is my breath okay? Did I powder my nose? Are we okay? Are we okay? How are we doing? Mm -hmm. If I'm giving you 92% of my attention to see how we're doing, I only have 8% of my attention focused on my own gut. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's almost a mathematical, energetic thing. And most people are going through the world with an enormous amount of their attention focused on the other person. And because they don't have enough of their attention focused on their own insides, they don't even know what to say because they're not clear enough about their own experience. It requires a certain degree of attention on one's own insides to even know what it is you're feeling. Mm-hmm. What my book does, it gives you many, many examples that will sort of ring true to you if you flip through the book of what it is you actually might be feeling underneath the superficial conflict you're having with your partner or it could be your your child at the time. Because aren't those what you're feeling, those are your triggers to what maybe your partner may be doing or saying or um part of that experience. So what they, which it's your stuff that triggers how you react to maybe your partner. Is that what you're saying? Well, uh, no, I'm saying that when you're trying to change your partner or Uh get through to your partner, you're often not taking enough of yourself with you. So for instance, I have a flashcard under the section feeling vulnerable. When you talk to that, talk to me that way, I just feel small. Mm-hmm. If I'm so busy arguing with him, I'm not really communicating what's underneath my management of my feeling diminished. Mm-hmm. I, actually, I'll give you a, con- a better example. Imagine saying to somebody, who's a loved one who's on the phone, saying, you know, you've been spending a lot of time on the phone with Barbara. You think you could give me some attention? Okay. <laughs> So I'm, I'm, I'm looking what you're doing on the phone with Barbara, as opposed to saying, you know, and this is vulnerable, as opposed to saying what's underneath that, Corinne, I'm aware watching how much fun you're having with Barbara that I'm feeling left out, and I worry that I'm not enough fun for you. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to create connection? In it- that second example, I'm connected to Nancy. Mm-hmm rather than trying to change Harold. Does that make some sense? It makes total sense. And what people, when you, when people say something, the, how it goes in the world, and I'm, I feel like I'm kind of a missionary in this regard. When someone says, you know, you're spending a lot of time on the phone with, Bar- with Barbara, you know, what am I, chopped liver? That passes for communication. What people don't realize is that 90% of their communication is obscuring what they're actually experiencing. And then they wonder why, why communication is so hard. It's because they're not actually communicating what's true. But it passes for communication. You understand mm-hmm. what I'm saying? I totally, yep. And, and I, I, I use, um, the term that I use is that when, you know, you're attacking your spouse and saying you're not, you know, spending time with me or you're always on the phone with them is you're in their business instead of asking, like being in your business, what is it that you need? What is it that you want? Because isn't it, isn't it true when you attack them and say, well, you're always on the phone. Now they're on the defensive because that flight or flight response has been triggered and so they're going to kind of pull away. Exactly. Perfect versus I love what you just said about your business as opposed to my business. I mean, I think you're you know that you are, you know, you're hitting the nail on the head. 
Yeah, it's so and and when but when you come up and you're vulnerable and say, "Oh, I really want to be a part of this or I want to spend time with you." Right? Then that's more of an attraction. It's more of, "Oh, here's somebody who wants to be with me. Here's somebody that wants to spend time with me and and either I can do that right now or I can't do that right now." Right. But but you're you're understanding and then that may be open up more I don't know if empathy is the right word, but it's it's not. It, there's less resistance, I guess. There's what what happens is when you see that someone is being transparent, something mm-hmm. in you melts. In other words, when you can, people, even difficult people, often can read transparency. And when we're when we're being transparent, and somebody sees our vulnerability, often unless you're with a psychopath, they can pivot and respond to it. I would really recommend that people listening to this go to my website, Nancy Dreyfus, D-R-E-Y-F-U-S dot com, where you can see some sample flashcards. In fact, you can download some for free, and you can actually just try on some of the cards and some of the messages and actually see what happens when you flash a simple, non-defensive message to your partner who you didn't think you could get, who you didn't think you could get through to. So I want to go back, and I'll have that link to your website on my site as well for the listeners. Um, but I want to go back to why, for people that are struggling with, but wh- I, why can't I just say it? Why do I have to have the written form? Well, you could. And, you know, uh, uh, it's a great question. My hope is that with enough consciousness and enough willingness that the book becomes a tool for you to begin seeing the power in vulnerability. Most of us grew up as children and did not have our, valid, our vulnerability validated. I'll give a, a simple example. Let's say you're an eight or a nine-year-old who got a new toy, and your mom very sensitively says to you, you know, your friend is coming over, and I can tell that you don't want to share it yet. You don't have to share it. Put it under your bed. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's a mom who is saying to you, Corinne, I know you're a generous person, and you're allowed to have a selfish impulse. Mm-hmm. That's a mother who says, I accept your feelings, and I don't judge you for them. Okay, mm-hmm. You can see that as a simple example of, of what usually doesn't happen. But let's give this as a theoretical, ideal, conscious mother. That mother is saying, all of your feelings are fine, including a selfish impulse. That person is going to be much more likely, naturally, to say to their partner, you know, I feel a little left out when you seem to be having so much fun with Corinne because they've already learned that their awkward, socially unacceptable feelings are acceptable. So I would say that if, in fact, you can speak this way with no edge in your voice and no tone, I am not expecting flashcards to completely take over the world and substitute, (laughs) appealing though the idea might be to me and my publisher, (laughs) that that we begin developing flashcards as a second language, obviously what we're hoping for is that speaking in a vulnerable way becomes more natural. But I have to tell you, you know, I am the um, wordsmith maven. Mm -hmm. I'm very good with language. I have, um, I mean, I know this stuff. I have people I haven't seen in seven or eight years who call me 11 o'clock at night. They're writing a letter and could I find the right word for them? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm good at it, but I have to tell you when I'm triggered, I'm not so good at it. 
Because when you're triggered, you're in that fight or flight response. When I am in a fight, I, I mean, I would love to tell you that I never got defensive, but since my partner and friends and daughter are probably listening, somebody's listening to this who knows me, I can't get away with it. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I appreciate that because then when other people are going through their struggles, it doesn't create more shame, right? Well, you know, Nancy's just so much better at this and I, I, I'm really horrible at this and therefore there's no hope for me. Right. right. And, and I, I'm going to tell you an interesting story about vulnerability. I have never shared this story publicly, but I guess I'm so far behind it. Um, many years ago, my ex-husband and I were going through a difficult time and we were, we were, we were not using our flashcards. And a, it's a longer story, but I had an a, um, Israeli couple who had come um, for an emergency session. Um, he was here on a fellowship, and I gave them two hours of conscious communication. And in the course of that session, she had shared with me that um, when she was pregnant, he, who had been a gynecologist, had called her a fat pig in front of family members when she took a second piece of dessert. So just keep Ooh. that in mind. And they had a great session. They left friends. They were much calmer. And two days later, I see clients in my home. So the longer story he came to get a pair of eyeglasses he had left here, and he overheard my husband. He walked in, and he had overheard my husband and I having a horrible fight. I, I did The embarrassing part of it wasn't that we were fighting. It's that I was not walking my talk. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I realized he was in the house, I wanted to tell him he was hearing a, somebody from our inpatient psychiatric ward. But I didn't, <laughs> but I didn't think it would fly. I would have to say it was probably one of the most humiliating experiences I have ever had in my life about being seen in my worst self. Mm-hmm. And two days later, I just couldn't tolerate the anxiety about it. I called him up and I said, I guess you overheard my husband and I not walking my talk, whatever. And, you know, he said that he felt badly that he invaded our privacy. And then there was an, ama- an amazing moment. Try to imagine this. He says to me, I guess it's how I would have felt if one of my gynecology OBG patients had heard me calling my wife a fat pig. Oh. Now, can you get a little chill? I have total chills up and down my arms. It was a, it was a holy instant. Mm-hmm. I have to say it was such an equal playing field. It was very, it was extremely kind on his part. But it was, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful story of what happens when two people are just vulnerable together. Corinne in their humanness. He could mm-hmm. see my humanness. I could see his humanness. We held open the space for each other's bigness. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment. And if that horrible, I mean, when it initially happened, I thought my practice was to go down the tubes. You know, the, the phone lines would be mm-hmm. ringing about what it was like behind closed doors. But what ended up happening, that moment with him, I cherish. You know, that reminds me of... Um... Brene Brown has been a frequent guest of my show, and we talked about shame and how mm-hmm. shame loves secrecy. And so w- one of the things that this example that you share with me thinks makes me think of her shame resilience, where when we have shame, when you reach out, right, and how mm-hmm. that can let go of the shame. And so just even by you reaching out to him and like owning your story, owning your part of right. you saw behind the curtain. Right. And well, what it, it's relevant to the whole book, because it's in the end, 
the best solution, no matter what, is to go vulnerable. Yeah. What was I going to do? Say that I was you know, make up some ridiculous excuse? I mean, my mind went wild <laughs> where I could go. Like this was an escapee from our inpatient psychiatric unit. I will admit there was a part of me that wanted to cover it up, but you realize there's no place to go except having to land in the truth. And, and with the risk of that, this could affect your practice. Right. Exactly. Exactly. In the sense of people, it's, you know, it's like people say, well, you're a couples therapist and you're divorced. What, what's, what's up with that? Well, it depends upon your reality. Mm-hmm. I believe that sometimes relationships are there for our own growth. Do I, I do not regret a day of my marriage. Actually, my ex-husband and I are incredibly good friends. We just had a very warm conversation recently, but we were sort of spiritual seekers together and we just realized it was time to move on. Some people would look at that as a failure, and I feel like it's a success if you know that something is no longer meeting your needs. It's really a success if you can separate as friends. Mm-hmm. You know, but I have to, there are people who might not want to work with me because I was divorced. Mm-hmm. And those people, you know, I might not be a good match for them. And having to just accept that, that you can't be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. No, and I, I think that's just great for the listeners because we, we talk a lot about that, about the journey and how people stumble and they fall, but they can get back up and they yes. can move forward. And really about that's how you create the life that you want. Um, it's not, you know, that you have to be um, bestowed this perfect life or that, you you know, your path is without any mistakes. It's, it's, it's a journey in, and through and these I, moments I, you learn. I want you to know that for my clients, so I haven't shared this story that much. Um, I, I'm going to kind of open, open, particularly open space today, hearing how messy life is. Mm-hmm. You see, I think there's a conspiracy of silence about how messy life really is. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think uh, Michelle and um, Barack um, have a very good thing going. I mean, mm-hmm. I get a sense of a really good marriage. But imagine what it would be like if there was a public conversation. He got up and he said, you know, we had, you know, we had a little spat last night and we haven't really made up yet. And it's a little distant between us. I mean, there's no real public conversation about how messy life is. Mm-hmm. No, because we want we want the image, right? Yes. And I mean, just and I don't really want to dive into this, but I was watching Lance Armstrong's interview Oh, I didn't get to see it. Tell me. Um, and so I was watching that, and um, and I've interviewed uh, uh, Dan Coyle quite a bit on my show, who's written a lot of books about Armstrong. And anyways, but one of the things that he said early on was, he goes, look, you know, I was the seven-time winner of the Tour de France. You know, I had this this great wife and this family. And he goes, it was all an image, mm-hmm. right? I couldn't, I'm a flawed person, and I couldn't make that work. Right. And, and I was like, wow, because I remember when I was first reading some of his books and just fell in love with the story, overcoming cancer, right? All these things. It's the American dream and how perfectly the story was put together. Well, and, this is a really interesting conversation because you know what it brings to mind? And I appreciate your bringing up, Lance. It brings up um, <clears throat> Tiger Woods. Mm-hmm. He, had, he was raised from four years old to be a, a model for black youth to be, his mother was a Buddhist, to be morally superior, to be a perfect athlete. He had to be a perfect person. Mm-hmm. When his um, flaws and addictions came to light and, it, you know, people were damning him, you know what I felt? I felt happy for him. I felt that he was going to get help and that he was going to no longer have to be perfect and that he was getting to see what the price he was paying 
that he needed some place where he didn't have to be perfect. Because, in other words, he was so groomed to fit a certain image. I'm not condoning his behavior mm-hmm. at all, but it's the natural sequelae. It's the natural consequence of what happens when you feel you have to fit an image. No, I agree with you. And it's, it's, I'm trying to find like the words for it, but it's, it's when you put so much pressure on one area, there's got to be release, right? There's, it's like steam. It has to come out somewhere. Right. And, um, and that's exactly for his case. And, and I've thought a lot about, I've reflected a lot about the whole Lance Armstrong thing about the price of winning, right? We want that figurehead and probably how scandalous even that we will never know the Lance Armstrong thing and the people that were a part of it, because whether they're jock sniffers and, you know, they want to be a part of this elite level thing. And so they were willing to put money into it. Um, and the cover ups that involved, to, to create the story, this image that people that people wanted to believe in. I'm curious because I didn't see it. Corinne, mm-hmm. did he come across to you as sincere? How did he come across? You know, and that's the troubling thing. And I was watching the Twitter feed as the sh- I was watching it live. Um, I don't know. Um, he. It's hard to say he maybe you could say like there's a naive, I think, part of me that wants to say, oh, yes, you know, he he came across as sincere. But when they showed tapes of him previously defending and saying that he wasn't doping, you know, maybe back in 2005, it's almost the same persona mm-hmm. that was portrayed last night. Right. I mean, in other words, you wonder whether it, what's changed in terms of his character now it's I hate to say it, an image of authenticity. You know, mm-hmm. this is a, to change that kind of character structure takes a lot of. I'm simply saying it's not just a one confession. Mm-hmm. It requires a whole shift in one's point of view about life. Yeah. So, um, and he didn't, and, she, and Oprah did ask him, why are you coming now, forward now? And he never answered that question. Right. Right. And so, um, I mean, he did answer, like she asked, did you take performance enhancing drugs? Yes. And Mm -hmm. she listed and he said, yes, yes or no. So that was very candid. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, and he he said that he was a bully. Um, But, yeah, the persona part, I I don't know. Well, let me this is a um, not to segue to my own book or anything. (laughs) Not that I would want to do that. Um, Speaking of authenticity. It, it is a perfect segue to the, one of the two new um, chapters, sections in my book. The two new sections in my book are Making Love and Deepening Trust. And I want to read some of my Deepening Trust ones, which are actually related to our um, Lance Armstrong conversation. I need to be able, number 120, I need to be able to risk sharing my distrust with you. It's the only way I am ever going to trust you. Mm-hmm. 123. I know you feel awful, but it's not enough. I need you to really, really know what it was like for me. And the carryover, the connection between what we're saying with Lance, when we say I need to be able to risk, share my distrust, when someone has had an addictive or a maladaptive pattern, um, let's say somebody's been drinking, I think the partner needs to be able to say to them, you know, your behavior was sounding a, a little strange. Did you have some alcohol today? In other words, I think that just because somebody says I've changed or just because Lance has said he's changed, that doesn't mean the history is over. Mm-hmm. That this is that building trust is not an overnight thing. I know you're, you feel awful, but it's not enough. I need you to really, really know what it was like for me. What does that mean? A husband has had an affair. He cries. He apologizes. He feels suicidal. He's, 
nothing is going to change until he knows he's able to give that his partner a real sense that he knows how completely humiliating it was that he did this as well as the fact that he he betrayed her trust that he made her feel like a chump for the part of her that felt he could never do such a thing you understand it's not an apology isn't enough and I totally understand that. And that goes back to me thinking of, okay, so that's you staying in your own business of what is it that I need, right? Instead of typically what we'll try to do, I think, especially for women, and you can please correct me where I'm wrong, is we'll say, oh, I, I want my husband to feel better. He may right. have cheated on me, but I want him to feel better. So I'm going to say, okay, I accept this, but internally really struggling with, can I trust him? Of course. And what I'm trying to say is the only way you will ever get to trust a partner who in some way has violated your trust is you have to, he has to be able to hold the space for your distrust. If he just says, I told you I'm never going to do it again, it's not, it's not going to work. He has to be able to actually say, it's hard for me to hear, but I can understand why you're, why a part of you still doesn't trust me. And then trust will be rebuilt. If he shames her for her distrust, then we're in pretend land. And, and Nancy, I appreciate you saying that building trust is not an overnight thing. Yes. Be because I think, and this is my point of view, but I think we're so into the overnight success or the quick fixes or the instant makeover that we think, oh, well, it should just happen faster. It's like we're kind of, I'm calling it Googleizing it, right? We ask, oh, for, ask, <laughs> we ask a question <laughs> and there's the response. <laughs> <laughs> well, here I just real I have a, a another flashcard that I really I love this. So, I mean, actually, when you sound annoyed when I bring it up again, I feel I have to pretend I'm past it and I'm not. Take that in. Ooh. When you sound annoyed when I bring it up again, I feel I have to pretend I'm past it and I'm not. I mean, isn't that powerful? That's Imagine powerful. that's somebody who's really giving herself permission to not be ashamed of her distrust and bring it out in the open. Oh, that's great. Um, so with these words, in your introduction, you had mentioned something about uh, this isn't, you're not you, Nancy, is not, are not trying to control the, the, the reader with these cards. You have a different intention and in how these cards can help people. Can you explain that? Well, my, my intention is to get them excited about speaking their truth. You know, I think that's the best thing that I can say is that, you know, most of us grew up being shamed for saying what was so and for speaking our truth. And most of us learned it is at our peril to make anybody else uncomfortable so that we're very, very focused on not making the other person uncomfortable. And what I'm trying to get people to do is really speak their truth. I'm, I'm sitting here looking at some of the cards in my making love section. And by the way, none of them are graphic or sexually explicit. <laughs> I just want to let everybody know they're not graphic or sexually explicit, but in my mind, they're the best kind of foreplay because what they're doing is they're making the two of you friends before you touch each other. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody would say that the purpose of sex is for pleasure and connection, but so much worry goes into bed. Um, you know, am I, Am I touching her the right way? Am I taking too much time? I look a little chubby today. You know, there's an enormous amount of worry. So along the lines of, you know, being able to speak your truth, here, here's a flashcard. I know I behave badly, 
but I don't want to have sex just to make it up to you. Can we clear things first? You know, that's somebody who's actually along the lines of which you speak about women. Mm-hmm. That's someone who's aware of, you know, just wanting to, to make up to the guy or just wanting to make it feel good mm-hmm. or, at, you know, having sex because she feels guilty. You know, I mean, that's a, that takes a lot of integrity to be willing to think that you might be momentarily depriving someone, but you want to speak your truth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I think what can give my listeners hope is that in your own personal journey, right? You grew up without having these communication skills, without having... I would sk- say I grew up in a family that relationally was primitive. I, I would say that at times it was it was just very combative. It was a lot of screaming. Mm-hmm. And now look at you having a different life and then being able to help people have a different way. Yes, and I would say it, it took a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It really, really, it took a lot of work. And, you know, speaking of image, I'll tell you a piece of my history. Um, I was a pretty unhappy kid. I was chubby. I didn't think that I was, you know, my, my mother was very much into glamour. <laughs> um, and I was kind of a chubby bookworm, and we were always trying to find new hairdos and new makeup and I got into an Ivy League college, and first I had to go to the Barbizon Modeling School. And I remember being, <laughs> I do, I can do things with a lipstick brush that would blow your mind. And um, I remember being in fifth grade working on the class newspaper, and I actually had the thought, I'm going to work for the New York Times one day, and then no one will notice I don't have a man on my arm. That was in fifth grade. Oh. I was already planning for my spinsterhood. And I am a graduate of Columbia School of Journalism, which many people do not know. And in the early 70s, I was a newspaper reporter for the largest paper in Philadelphia. And I won a major journalism award, the Robert F. Kennedy um, Journalism Award for reporting on the problems of the disadvantaged. And a more idealistic Geraldo Rivera won for broadcast and I won for print. And we all had dinner with Ted and Ethel Kennedy at Hickory Hill. And I got a job offer at the New York Times. And my adolescent dream come true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we, it was going to be perfect. I was going to have this spiffy job and no one would know that I didn't have a man on my arm. And uh, uh, it looked like the universe had different plans for me because six weeks before I was supposed to move to New York, I was sent to do an expose on a meditation group. And it's a, a little longer story, but I began having, for lack of a better phrase, some spiritual experiences. And I actually began to see that there were many ways that journalism was just creating a lot of pain and fear on the planet, that people hear all these horrible things that are going on, and it just creates fear, and fear creates defense, defense creates attack. And I made the decision um, that I didn't want the glamorous job. And I will say to people in a life that has had many challenges, um, the hardest thing I ever did was tell my Jewish mother, I am not going to the New York Times, I'm going to the ashram. <laughs> it was not it, I'll tell you it was not an easy conversation. Mm-hmm. But it was it was actually along the focus that you're putting here. It was making part of why I have the solidity I have where I do, including the solidity to acknowledge my flaws, is because I made a decision that I wasn't going to go for image. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a spiffy job for a 25-year-old. Yeah. And it was a it was a lifelong dream. It was a it was a dream from fifth grade on. And Nancy, now looking back at your life, do you have regrets for not taking that job? 
um, I don't have regrets at all. And I feel like right now, you know, I'm in, certainly in terms of writing, talk to me like I'm someone you love. I'm integrating my psychological, my psychospiritual interests and my mm-hmm. metaphysical interests with writing. I have to say, recently, just seeing the constant barrage of violent news that's being reported all the time and the focus on it, part of me wants to go a little bit, go back into investigative journalism and to be able to to probe the question, should there be journalistic ethics about what the impact is of their writing on the, on the reader and the viewer in terms of the anxiety that it creates? You know, I'm very interested in why people choose to become journalists. In other words, what in terms of their own childhood wounding, you know, they're trying to work through in the sense of thinking that if they bring the evil guys to light and they write about all the bad things in the world, that somehow the world is going to change. And I don't think it works that way. Mm-hmm. I think that the more people hear about all the darkness on the planet, the more depressed people get, the more it gives people ideas. So anyway, I, I can see there's a part of me that might want to do some investigative um, reporting, although right now the idea of bringing, um, teaching people, I, I think I can do more for world peace, Corinne, helping people be kind to the person they woke up with this morning rather than getting two million readers um, upset over what's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, doesn't it, when I think of this show, I mean, this show is about where inspiration and possibility meet, right? And it's about struggles and overcoming and understanding that there's, it's not just overnight success. It's about practicing. It's about learning. It's about, um, you know, tweaking and making adjustments. And, and that's where your, your book and your flashcards come so well into uh, this, this community because as you say, you can go ahead and read through all the flashcards. And in what, what I, there was a comment you had made, it was, um, you know, you may find something that you could have used yesterday, but you didn't know, but it will still be good for tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I mean, actually, that what I tell people to do is that they should get a copy of the book. I mean, ideally, they should get two copies, one for them and their partner. But I I don't want to sound greedy here, but you should get at least one copy of the book and read through even just the index. I have an essay on each flashcard. And you, how the book works is you just hold up the book. It's like a giant-sized flashcard for your partner and go through the list. And you will find probably 10 to 15 that so say, oh, my God, I wish I had had that available a few days ago. Mm-hmm. And I can promise you that what would have been available a few, a few days ago will, will <laughs> I promise you, I promise you it will come up again. And you, you understand the most common question people ask me, though I must admit more men ask me than women, is you really think that in the midst of an argument, I'm going to go up and get that book and blah, blah, and, you know, flash that card. And, you know, I, have, I, I love being able to give my answer to that. If you need money and you go to the ATM machine and there are two people ahead of you, do you leave the ATM machine? I don't think so. If you go to Starbucks and you want a latte, do you walk in and walk out because they haven't made your latte yet? If you are willing to spend four to six minutes at the ATM machine or the Starbucks when you probably spend seven of your waking hours worrying or complaining about your relationship, why or why would you not spend three minutes to nourish and improve a pattern that has been torturing you for the last five years? Mm-hmm. You know, so, but it's a choice. People get very comfortable with the familiar and using the flashcard and changing the energy. 
is actually taking the whole relationship into new terrain. Well, and don't you think that people just don't realize it's a skill set that they can learn? Yes. Yes. I think you're absolutely right. Yes. And part of why they think that is if you grew up in a family where you believed your parents loved you, and I believe most parents love their kids, and loving you didn't include caring about how you feel, it would never dawn on you that a love relationship would require that you care about how somebody feels. Just take that in. It's so basic. Say that again. Say that again. If you grew up in a family where routinely your parents, particularly your mother, didn't seem that interested in how you felt, you would grow up believing that you can conduct a love relationship with someone without having to pay attention to their feelings. Because after all, I was loved as a child with a mother who never was interested in how I felt. So we have loyalty to our family, of, to the model in our family of origin. So that the idea that a love relationship would require that I be interested in how you feel just isn't part of my hard wiring. So can you give examples of how to love somebody and be interested in how they feel? I can. I can actually give you, I'll give you a very good example. My partner and I had an upset where I was positive that he was wrong. (laughs) He was wrong. (laughs) But I guess I wasn't so positive. I asked a third person, a friend, Jan, who I thought would side with me, and unbelievably, Jan showed me where he was right and I was wrong. Okay, And I'm deliberately not giving content, and you'll understand why by the end of the story. And she gave me a new perspective on it where I saw I wasn't as right as I thought. Okay? Mm-hmm. So then I think, well, I'm going to go back um, to my partner, and I'm going to tell him that I now see the light, and he's going to think I'm wonderful for seeing the light and being so noble, right? (laughs) So I go back to him, and I say, I have very good news. I discussed what happened with Jan, and she got me to see what you've been trying to tell me. I am so sorry. You are right, and I am wrong. And then I expect a gold star. And you know what he said? (laughs) He said, you told Jan that? (laughs) Are you kidding? That was private? Are you kidding? I mean, I was crushed, Corinne. I so expected the pat on the head and being seen as noble and virtuous. But he's wired in a completely different way. And if you knew his background and issues around privacy and exposure and all sorts of things, this is a great example because we have two people with two separate realities. He is not me and I am not him. So what do you do? We can fight forever about what's wrong with him, that he's not seeing my virtue, or he could fight forever that I'm not seeing that I violated his privacy. There is only one way out. And it's called taking turns that I need to really hear that it was humiliating for him, even though it was a non-event for me. And, you know, I, I already told you I sounded like a fishwife. You know, I'm happy to expose these things, but he's more private. Mm-hmm. And so I really need to empathize with his reality, and I, I need to look, see the problem, why people have difficulty empathizing with the other reality, because then they think their reality won't get a shot. You need to have the point of view that I can understand why he, was you, why he felt humiliated and violated, and that doesn't mean that I don't have a right to my feelings. Mm-hmm. So he's the one in that moment who's the most charged because he felt betrayed by me sharing this. Mm-hmm. So I just needed to say... I am so sorry. It never crossed. I thought that your desire 
for me to understand your point of view was so great, it would not have bothered you that I sought outside counsel. But I learned that wasn't the case. I simply had to be willing to really validate his feelings that he felt that I shared something publicly that should not have been anybody's business. Then when he hears that I really get what it was like for him, that I have to really, really know how awful that was for him, and he feels felt, as we say, then he can say to me, given the fact that you never felt growing up, Nancy, that anybody saw your goodness, I can see why it was wounding for you when you were doing what you thought was the virtuous thing, and it didn't matter to me. And in the moment, it didn't matter. That's what else can you do? Mm-hmm. But it's the, the idea that there are two realities. I do an intervention with clients that is so simple. I have one of the, I have them pretend that they're building a tower with blocks, that they're two and a half building a tower. And I act like mommy A. And I come and I just walk in. I say, come on, we have to go to grandma's. I just pull them away. And then I come back and I'm mommy B. And I stop and I say, oh, that tower is so great. You are working so hard on it. I feel like a total witch. We have to go to grandma's. I can't leave you here alone. And they say, no, I don't want to go. And then I say to them, you know what? There is absolutely no reason right now you should want to go to grandma's. I have had grown men cry in that moment, Corinne, Uh because they've never had an experience before of somebody, even in fantasy, being able to hold their reality if their reality was different from my reality. That moment where I say, you know what, we have to go to grandma's. And I can completely understand there's no part of you that wants to go right now, even if she gave you a cookie. They start to cry because all people want is to feel that someone will just let them have their reality and that it's not a deal breaker. And they're crying because I'm letting them have their reality and I'm still loving them. I'm not seeing it as adversarial. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm just writing because that's so profound. So people want, so in that situation, it's it's not maybe, you know, because let's go back to the, the so-called real world, right? Because a parent will say, well, we have to get this done or we have to go visit grandma right. because blah, blah, blah. But just acknowledging, I understand this may not be what you want to do. That is the gift. I, I didn't made many mistakes with my daughter, but one thing I did when it was her day to take out the garbage, I would say, honey, it's your day. You know, you have to take out the garbage. Is this a good time for you? Why did I do that? It's letting her know that I know she has a reality other than mine. Mommy A, who just grabs the kid and says, come on, we have to go to grandma's, is treating the child as an extension of her. So that child then grows up not knowing she can have her own reality. And therefore, she doesn't automatically come out with my flashcard statements, which are always expressions of one's own reality. But first, you need to know you're allowed to have your own reality. It's that basic, Corinne. That most, what most, that's what I had to learn coming from the jungle that I came from. And I'm now, in retrospect, I'm glad I came from it because I couldn't rely on my past experience to learn how to do it. I had to consciously learn it. But if we, we grew up, as I grew up, and many people listening to this grew up, where our moms just said, come on, we have to go to grandma's. No one stopped and said, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm interrupting you. Mm-hmm. Which would have let us know that our reality mattered. Otherwise, what we have a world of, if I'm 
still fused with with um, the other the person in front of me. If I think we're extensions of each other, my basic choices in life are to be compliant and resistant. And most people go through life being either compliant or resistant, having to react to the other person's reality because no one ever knew they were allowed to have their own. Saying no to my reality doesn't necessarily mean you're living in your own. That's resisting my reality, but it's not necessarily meaning you're clear about what you really want. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. But that, that experience of someone saying, it makes sense to me that you wouldn't want what I wanted. You know how, how healing that is? Well, and even for that example with your husband, right? Because when you went and talked to your friend about the situation, you opened him up to being vulnerable with somebody that he did not choose. Correct. And that was where I, I, I can see, you know, that certainly I wouldn't do it again. You know, that was a learning. Mm-hmm. But it, in, a, in a sense, if you're not going to get crazy with each other, when you have these ruptures in a partnership, they become opportunities to learn something rather than reasons to go to war. Mm-hmm. If I had absolute, if I felt so much shame that he didn't appreciate my, my virtue and I just crashed him and said, you know, don't be such a baby. Can't you see that I was trying to find the truth? And we wouldn't have gotten anywhere. I had a hold that even though I was disappointed that he didn't think I was wonderful, or certainly not immediately, but he still had a point of view. And I want you to know that 25 years ago, I would have hadn't had a clue about that. One of us was right, and one of us was wrong. <laughs> and, it was, and I was right. And did you keep score? <laughs> In my head. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> In my head, of course. And how did you come about where you can look at the mistakes that you made and not let it create shame where then you go into hiding and don't, don't evolve. Right. Cause isn't that well, what people I would have do? to say? I, I would have to say that, that having a spiritual path and understanding something about the psycho spiritual nature of life helps because if we understand that there really is, we all have like a part of us that's Buddha or Jesus. We all have a very pure part then the part of us that's screwed up is never our truest self. So I have been a meditator for many, many, you know, I, I, I was going to leave journalism to become initially a meditation teacher. So I have been meditating since 1973, for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. And that allows me to actually deactivate my fight or flight response. I would like to say something that I think is helpful. I'm not free of shame. The trick in life, the problem isn't that we feel shame, rage, fear, or anything. It's that we lose Nancy or we lose Corinne. If I can say to you, wow, there's a part of me that's feeling shame right now, it's really not a problem. Mm-hmm. It's when I just become shame that we, we begin having a problem. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, it's, you don't want to lose the phrase that I sometimes use as your aware self or your head of household. If there's a part of me that's reporting on how I'm feeling, then we're okay, rather than me just becoming the feeling, if I can observe it. I love the, I'm going to give a tip to people, a tip, a great tip, communication tip that can change your life is to talk in parts. Look at the difference between saying, I'm hating, I hate you, and me saying, Corinne, a part of me is hating you right now. If I can say a part of me is hating you right now, then the part of me that's reporting on it is loving you. Oh. A part of me feels jealous. 
when you are on the phone. A part of me feels diminished. A part of me worries. A part of me worries that you've been drinking again. It's so much easier to hear. I mean, it's magic, actually. Can you see it? I can see that. Even for a parent with a kid, a part of me wonders whether you were telling me a lie. Because there's still the space then that I love you. Right. It, it is, it's, it, and you know what it says? The fact that so many people have the reaction you're having right now tells us that's probably how we are. We're, we have a lot of parts. Mm-hmm. And when we go black and white, so many things get missed. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> your laugh. Your, I love your laugh. <laughs> A very supportive laugh. <laughs> well, I I work on the all or nothing mindset. Excuse me, <coughs> quite a bit because that, I can. That's follow... something that somebody would say about you that you tend to be a well, bit black and white in your thinking. Well, I think more. I think that's how I grew up, very black and white. And I've mm-hmm. really, in my the last twenty years, have really worked on that black and white, realizing that life isn't that clear cut. Did you have a parent who was black and white? Oh yes, mm-hmm. yes. You were. Well, you, that's you know, where you learned it. Sure. You, you had to strive for perfection and you had to be perfect. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's something that, you know, I constantly work on and practice. And, re- you know, when it does come up, the old patterns come up, I realize, okay, it's not black and white. It's not all or nothing. You know, right. let's look so at a this. Great, a great affirmation or a great phrase for you would be a part of me worries that you're not going to love me because I screwed up. Mm-hmm. Part of me wor- a part of me worries. You're going to be upset with me if I didn't do this perfectly. You know, just sort of soften it all. But that's a tough background to grow up in. Yes. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for coming on my show today. It's been just a pleasure talking with you. It's been lovely. You are you're a great person to converse with about this stuff because you've given it so much thought yourself. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us at How She Really Does It. Each week, I try to bring inspiration, empowerment, and entertainment for you. Each show has a takeaway, something you can implement to take those steps forward in your own journey. I'd love to hear from you. You can connect with me at my website at www.howshereallydoesit.com and sign up for my weekly newsletter to get insider information as well as each podcast delivered directly into your inbox. Have a great day and I'm smiling big for you. Early morning. Fog is lifting, she's in a rowboat on a lake. She is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so. Sold-